Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Ryan Holiday on the podcast. Ryan is an author, media strategist, and entrepreneur. His books include Growth Hacker Marketing, The Obstacle is the Way, and Ego is the Enemy, which is, is his latest book, which just came out yesterday. Thanks, Ryan, for chatting with me. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. Wow. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you. Wow. Do you remember how we met? Yes. Oh, I was just thinking about that the other day. But yeah, you don't know from my perspective. So we were both there to have dinner with Neil Strauss, which is right. why we we're both there. And, and you were actually, you were just like so nice. Like you were so like, well, you made me feel so comfortable. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't even know it was you. I don't know it was Ryan Holiday, but you were like, you made some joke as well. You're like, yeah, I know a man. Like I said something stupid. You're like, I know a man. And I was like, oh, I really like this guy. And, uh, and then, it, then it turned out like it was like Ryan Holiday that we had we were having dinner together. So it was pretty cool. That was forever ago. Oh, I feel like I've changed. I feel like I've changed. Maybe that's the narrative I've created now. Every year. But <laughs> now I read your book, I think about everything differently. But um, uh, yeah, you, how do you feel like you've grown since that was maybe three years ago, four years ago? No, it was more than that. Yeah, it was 2011 probably. So I'd written my book, but it was still being edited. It hadn't published. So I was very much not a in any way public person at that point, right? Like I'd only worked for very public people, but I was just a behind the scenes person. So I was sort of right on the cusp of, you know, releasing my first book and that sort of coming out in that sense. So I think I was much more introverted then. I was much less confident then. In some ways, life was easier then, obviously, because there was less, you know, responsibilities and stuff. But I see that as sort of being right before... A lot of big things happen. So I, I think about it very fondly. 
It's so funny. So that was the exact moment my life was like. I was working my first book, Ungifted, and yeah. I was like, like so nervous. Like this first book's gonna come out. What's and I think I was a lot more um, quiet then. I was a lot less confident. Sure. So literally everything you just said, and then it's kind of like this arc of what happens. And then I read this, you know, between this book, you kind of get to a point where then, and then you're in the public, and you're like, oh my gosh, like. Like all of a sudden, I, I don't know, I found myself becoming more self-critical and then, and then through becoming more self-critical and that, then becoming more confident, like kind of needing to fall back in order to move into and sort of have more stability. It's just kind of this interesting back and forth process. What, what's it been like for you? No, I, I agree with that. It matches with my experience. I think you mentioned the narrative thing earlier. Maybe you've experienced this, but one of the weird parts is that, you know, you do these podcasts and you do radio and media and, and speaking events. And you end up hearing like like what we just described was you know 2011 to 2016. That's a you know four plus years, a lot of work, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of really good times, some terrible, scary times. You know, lots of stuff is in there. But as you do press, all of that immense amount of life, a half decade, is compressed down to like two sentences, and they're all positive sentences, right? They're all about like all the great things that you've done. And so I think one of the ways, one of the, one of the hard parts or one of the things you have to remind yourself of is little moments like what we were just talking about. So you don't, you don't tell yourself you're on this like, you know, rocket ship to success or that, you know, it was all faded. You know, you've got to enjoy and be very aware of the complexity and nuance of that time and not to sort of brush over it. Absolutely. And so at that point, have you already worked with Tucker Max? Have you already worked with Gov? I had, yeah. So this was like my sort of coming out from yeah. a lot of those things. But, you know, and, and I had a bit of a story even then in the sense that it's like, you know, I dropped out of college and, you know, you could tell yourself like I'm this dropout and I'm sleeping on a floor and I'm hustling and I'm going places. And that can be great, but it can also go to your head and sort of detach you from the reality of the present moment. So I have a question about these individuals that you worked with that I just mentioned, like Tucker and Dove. They undoubtedly had at least one point huge egos. Yes. You can't say they didn't. Like you can't. It's not like I'm like. I, and I that, wouldn't. Yeah, it's not like I'm saying something that like I'm yeah. like talking about them bad behind their backs. Do you know what right. I mean? Like to say like Tucker Max had an ego is not to talk about him bad behind his back. It's right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's a self-proclaimed. You know, he at least he was at one point. And so. I wonder how much have these individuals learned and grown in their lives as well? Have you seen it? Have you seen a growth trajectory there? Well, T Tucker obviously is very different than when I met him. I mean, he's he has a family and he runs a company. And I would say there's very few people in his life that would not say that he is radically different. Dove, I'm, I'm not close with anymore. I sort of went our separate ways after American Apparel and he's sort of doing his own thing. I think what I saw working for those egotistical people, and again, like you, I don't mean that insulting. I saw just how, what a burden it actually was, right? In some ways, it, it motivated them to take huge risks that paid off in big ways. But I mostly saw that ego as a negative force in their life. Like, because my role was often to have to battle that ego, not for my own personal gain. I wasn't like fighting against Dove's ego so he would promote me. It was like I was fighting against Tucker's ego so he wouldn't do some dumb thing that would be not in his interest or that I would be fighting his presupposition or, 
or strong opinion about a person that he never met that I actually thought that if he could connect with would be good for his career, right? So as a sort of an advisor and a marketer and employee and partner in a lot of cases, I was just so exhausted with, and and not just with these two people, but battling other people's egos is just so tiring because it's almost like a superhuman force. They're not, it's not rational at all. And so you have to just chip away at it just to get them to, again, to do something not stupid. Totally. And the main point of your book is that battling your own ego is exhausting too. Yes, yeah. of course. And and I think, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, this person has a huge ego and it causes problems for them. I think what I spent a lot of time trying to do in the last couple of years is looking at the ways in which being around these egotistical people at such a formative time in my life when I held them up and at such a place in my mind, how did how have I picked up some of their bad habits? You know, it's it's like if you grew up as a child of an alcoholic, you're going to pick up certain habits, both you know biologically and culturally. And I, I certainly got some of that just being in that ego twenty four seven. It's just what a learning experience. It's almost like you know you read some of those books, like I hope they serve beer in hell, and it's like textbook, textbook like the point of your book. Like, yeah. <laughs> sure, it's weird how life works out. Like it it is, and and obviously I saw none of that at the time. Interesting. Did you just think it was cool? I thought it was funny, right? Funny. And that's what's so interesting. Like, like for instance, I don't know a Kanye West, but I would imagine I, I have seen this. Like, I've, I've spoken to these people that, for instance, know Donald Trump, and their opinion of him is radically different than my opinion as an outsider. And part of that is because it's very hard to be sort of destructive and difficult like, like these people are. And be successful unless it's combined with an immense kind of charisma and, you know, sort of adeptness at personal relationships. And so, like, they experience a different Donald Trump than you and I do watching him as a raving lunatic on television. And I think with Tucker and some of the people that I work for, what you're experiencing is not the obnoxious side of their ego. It's being tempered by the personal connection you have with them. So I didn't meet character, the character version of them. I met the a, a different one. That makes complete sense. I can see reading your book. I can see how you're, you're obviously more than the sum of the parts, but I can see like, I read certain sentences. I'm like, oh, that was so Robert Greene's influence. Like every <laughs> Probably, time, every yeah. time you say that, I, I like literally like broke it down in my house. Like every time you say the word reality, I'm like, there's Robert Greene's in it. You know, sure. Every time, and then I can see, I sense the Stoicism influence, the great Stoics, and I can mm-hmm. read a sentence where you know you're like, do not be slaves to your passions. It's like, oh, that's his Stoicism. So it's so cool. Like you've had you've had these experiences, and you bring, and it, you know, you are the more than some of the parts. You're more, of course, but we are all. There's like a long chain of things that like if you were God, you could explain, explain. Yes. You know what sure. I mean? No, totally. I mean, I love Austin Kleon stuff where he's talking about that basically you people are like, how do I develop a style? And he's like, you basically just imitate other people's style until it, you put enough of your own touch on it that it becomes your own style. And so I, I totally agree. I mean, I feel very indebted to Robert. I feel very... I love the sort of second person style that uh, the Stoics use a lot. Like they they call the reader out in a in a way that 
doesn't feel like it's lecturing. It feels like, hey, like you and me, we both have this same problem. So I, I try to I try to write that way. And I think I, I didn't say this at the back of the book. Like I feel like if there are any really good sentences in the book, it probably and I'm not just saying this, they probably are something I I unconsciously picked up from someone else. And actually I worry I worry that I might have memorized some sentence from someone and and put in there. One of the things I did with the book is I hired a a fact checker to go through and make sure that I didn't do that. No, that, that's really smart. That's really smart. So actually, there are, there are a lot of things you wrote in this book that are very beautifully worded. And I, um, okay. I'm i actually just going through my notes right now because I want to read uh, some of them out that I, that I okay. highlighted. Responsibility requires a readjustment that increased clarity and purpose. First, setting the top level goals and priorities of your organization and your life, then enforcing and observing them to, pres- to produce results and only results. That was something I, I remember I, I – trying to think what book I would have picked it up on. I don't remember what book I picked it up in. But I remember seeing at American Apparel because I was sort of involved in all these different facets of the company that normally someone in my position wasn't. And what you see is that like, look, if – that basically as I understand the way that a corporate hierarchy needs to work is that the board of directors thinks the most long-term, the CEO thinks the second most long-term, and then down the line until you get to you know the janitor who thinks like there's a spill right there and I need to clean it up, right? Yeah. And so – you know, running my own company in my own life, you realize like if you're not thinking long term and there's not somebody above you thinking more long term, then you're just winging it and you're going to get screwed, you know? And so that's sort of, I was thinking about the way in which somebody has to determine what the goals or the strategy is in your life or um, you don't have one. <laughs> For sure. And this, this idea of um, like having a North Star purpose. Yes. And being consistent in your values and your actions is so important for well-being, you know, like that's what creates an integrated human being. And that's well, and if you don't have that, how do you especially and I've found, you know, being somewhat fortunate that I get a lot of incoming stuff like, hey, do you want to do this? Like, hey, I'd like you to write that or whatever. How do you know what to say no to if you don't know what you're trying to do? And like, Obviously, I think it's harder to talk about that because it feels like such a first world problem. And most of the people in like the sort of self-help space or the readership, they're trying to get anything going. But I think the reality is you must get it. You must be inundated with like request, like you can choose what you're going to research, right? Or what you're going to write about. And so if you say yes to everything, then how, like, how do you know what the right thing to say yes to? How do you know you know, when you've made the wrong choice, like if you don't know, you end up just sort of going wherever the random deal flow takes you. Yeah. And you also, yeah, absolutely. And you don't create the sense of, of a coherence or meaning. Totally. Yeah. Find out why you're after what you're after. Ignore those who mess with your pace. Let them covet what you have, not the other way around, because that's independence. You know, the humanistic, great humanistic psychologists of the 50s and 60s, uh, Raul May, you know, like these people I'm obsessed with, like Abraham Maslow, inward, it being inwardly free is how they describe, is, is kind of the ultimate of life. And uh, you're, you're kind of striking at the core of that there. Have you ever heard of the band Lucius? They're one of my favorite yeah. bands. They, they have this song, I forget what the song's called, but it, it, there's this line in it and, and she says, I think it's a girl, she says, there is no race, there's only a runner or there's only the runner. And I think you got to think about it that way. It's like, yeah. if you think that you're in a race with all these other people, then you have to like, you have to measure yourself about whether you're beating them or not, or, you know, you have to keep their pace. But it's like, you don't know. I, I actually realized this. I was a college. I was a, the first thing I ever wrote is actually about this. It's on my website. 
<laughs> I don't know when it was, but it, this would have been like 10 years ago. But I was running, I would run around this like sort of uh, dirt track at, at my college and I was running and then this other guy, he, he started running and I could tell that he was racing me and I, I, you know, I'm competitive and I wanted to race against him. And then I realized like, but I've already been running for like three miles. Like if I keep pace with this person, I don't know when he's going to quit. I don't know how long he's been running before. Like, so, so if you just randomly compete with people because they're like in the same proximity to you, that's like a recipe for totally burning yourself out or making a big mistake because you, you're lacking all the context you need to make that decision. Absolutely. So, you know, um, when uh, Manuel Miranda, who yes. Hamilton, and did you know that quote he said from 20, his interview in 2020 about, no. like, he's like, I wasn't the smartest kid in school. I'm just like paraphrasing and butchering yeah. this quote, but, I, you know, I wasn't necessarily the smartest kid in school, but what I did is I picked a lane that I knew I could run fast in and I just ran. You know, he's That's like, That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's a great quote. I'll totally. Put, put it in the show notes. So, okay. So again, some of these quotes that I, from your book that I've highlighted are beautiful in different ways. This next one is beautiful just in terms of aesthetic appeal to the sentence. Ego is a wicked sister of success. My, my premise is that ego manifests itself differently depending on what you do, right? Like egotistic, the egotism of a loser is going to be very different than the egotism of a billionaire, right? And so I think, I think, one of the crazy things is that as you become successful, not only are you if, – if you're someone who's saying that you're great all the time, but if you do something, then other people are going to be telling you that same thing. And so in that way, success can breed egotism or, or breed – it can compound those illusions that you already have about yourself. That's great. Okay, next one. A person's job is to create work. An idea is not enough. The hard thing isn't dreaming big. Imagination is essential, but if it stops with imagination, then what what good was it? Yeah, and that's the next quote. Our imagination in many senses is an asset. Is it weird that I'm like recording you in front of you? <laughs> it is strange. It's dangerous when it runs wild. So our imagination in many senses is an asset is dangerous when it runs wild. So you're saying imagination is still good. So I, I still yeah. should have a job as a scientist who studies imagination. Of course. However, you know, not coupled with reality at all, right? Not not constantly being tested. Can I, be a problem. I think that's a huge part, but also because like, you know, people can live in this sort of fantasy world, but also if you're not picking the best of your imagination and then, you know, making it real, like putting work behind it, that's the other problem. So it's like, how many people have ideas for books? Like, for instance, like, I think there was like half a million books published last year because of self-publishing now it's like radically expanded it. That's awesome. But how many millions of people had this exact thought? Oh, you know, it'd be a great book idea, like blank, you know, insert. But how few of those people, only half a million of them actually did it? No, I, I, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there is like, you know, it's coupled with your whole idea in a chapter about um, talk less, you know, yeah. do more. So you uh, actually, isn't that like a quote from Hamilton as well when he's giving Hamilton advice? Uh, he's like, let me give you some advice. Talk less. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> You say be less or do more is a direct quote from from the book. Yeah. So, so the, this is interesting. I've been trying to think, understand this. So when you say be less or you actually you contrast to say to be or to do. 
My conceptualization of, of being is a little bit different than what you put in, into the book or you, what you describe as being. And so I don't think it's incompatible because I think like learning to be is, is really important in the sense of being your full self and, yes. and having authenticity. So I think it's interesting. It's, can you tell the listeners a little bit what you mean by being and, um, and how that differs from the sort of doing? So that chapter is based on a, on a speech that John Boyd has become famous for called the To Do or To Be speech. And if you don't read the book, just Google the speech because it's like amazing and it's, on, it's in a bunch of articles. But he's not saying like, don't be yourself. He's saying there's a difference between sort of like, and look, he was coming from a military background, particularly like the bureaucracy in the Pentagon. He's like, don't be the general who has like, you know, three stars on their sleeve. Do the work of a general who has that, right? So he's saying there's a distinction between like all the trappings of success and like the real work or influence that a successful person can have. So like what I say in the book is like, there's no aircraft carrier named after John Boyd. You know, most people have no idea who he was, but he transformed the armed forces. Like he shepherded the F-15 and the F-16 through he was the the genius behind the grand strategy of the first Gulf War. He was a brilliant mind who influenced a lot of people directly and also sort of set up this network of protégés that had an immense amount of influence. But he wasn't concerned with like rank or kissing asses or, you know, getting attention. He was just fo- so he was focused on the doing rather than like the getting credit or getting the rewards of doing. Well, I hear you. You know, there's uh, in school, a lot of kids are labeled as gifted, right? Yeah. And that's kind of like a, it's a being thing, right? Like you're yeah. gifted, like it doesn't say anything about what you've actually done in the world. And, you know, a lot of adults as well, it's still, they grow up and it's still part of their identity. It's a strong part of their day. They say, yeah. They say I'm a gifted adult. And, you know, it's tricky because in life, you know, people tend to appreciate more what you actually do than, you know, there, sure. there, there, there are these transitions in, in life where it's important. So it's, it's really interesting. Okay, here's another quote. Ego tells us that meaning comes from activity, that being the center of attention is the only way to matter. So is this something that you discovered when you, when you started um, learning more about what the, the, the functioning of the ego is? That Yeah, can you unpack that a little more? This came more from, I think, my own struggle in the sense that it's really hard for me to do nothing, like to just sit there and feel like good about myself. But if I'm working on something, all of that emptiness or doubt or insecurity goes away. Because like, especially if you're good at whatever it is that you do, right? So it's like, I could go to a party and it could be awkward, or I could feel, you know, insecure or whatever. But if I was at home sitting on my computer, writing would be going well, right? Because I'm pretty good at it. So I think, there's a certain ego in sort of gravitating towards what comes naturally to you, to your strengths. And, and it, this, I think work addiction is, is rooted in both insecurity and ego at the same time, right? If I stop doing, I will be nothing and everyone will forget about me and I will be worthless, right? So I, I'm not remembering exactly where that quote comes from. That's, I think that's what I'm referencing. Maybe you're quoting certainly... yourself. Yes. <laughs> and you just forgot. No, that's an excellent point. And then you say, and I think related to this, you say ego blocks us from the beauty and history in the world. It stands in the way. You know, I mean, that's a direct linkage to your prior book, right? The obstacle. Yeah. The way, right? Well, I mean, if you were to go to like, I don't know, some civil war battlefield near you or some beautiful, you know, national park, what would you see? You'd see a bunch of people on their cell phones, not paying attention, right? Like, 
we become so detached from the world around us because we're focused exclusively on, you know, our work email or, you know, the bickering with someone or whatever is going on. And, and I think, you know, one of the ways that we sort of deny how ephemeral life is and how vulnerable we are to the world is by focusing exclusively on sort of modern shit, you know, like, we don't like to be humbled by nature, I would say generally, and so we avoid it. You know, you you walk through the redwood forest in, you know, Northern California, and you see a bunch of trees that are like five times older than you will ever be, right? It sort of reminds you just how sort of inconsequential you are to uh, really all inspiring experience. No, no, no. I, that's exactly what I'm saying. But most people don't seek that experience out enough. Like our modern lives are essentially a denial of that feeling, right? It's like we predict the weather, you know, we live in safe housing, we can turn on the air conditioner when it gets hot, you know, like we have, through our genius as a species, insulated ourselves in a lot of ways from the the nature. But the idea that the world is relatively indifferent to your existence is, uh, I think, an inherently humbling idea that not a lot of people contemplate. I'm really glad you made that point, Ryan. There's, um, my, my friend David Yaden came, I don't know if you read the paper recently he did, where he had people simulate, like, being from space, and he also, they called the overview effect. If, I love the overview effect, yeah. You've heard of it. So, um, and a lot of astronauts describe just like, and that's the, kind of the ultimate humbleness, you know, yes. more than just the trees, but actually just looking at your whole planet as like a little like pin drop, you know, a little, yeah. um, a little dot. And yeah, this research suggests it does cause this entire shift in your whole perspective of, of yourself and your ego. I'm just really glad that you, you made that point in the book. No, I'm fascinated by the overview effect. There's two things. One, the guy who, who has that famous quote, the astronaut, I'm forgetting his name, he just died. But he has that one where he's like, you know, you look at the world and you just want to, he's like, you just want to grab the politicians by the, by the collar and shake them and say like, you son of a bitch or something like that, which I love. And then there's another one where it's like some astronaut who was like alone in the space station, like he took this photo of Earth. And I, the writer, I think, observed this. Someone was like, what's crazy about this photo is literally everyone who's alive on Earth is in this photo except the guy taking it and like so how you know like how how humbling and crazy that vantage point is you and know, then couldn't that go both ways though just to be cheeky for a second probably could that give you a huge ego to be like you know what i'm the oh i'm special i'm the only one in the entire planet that, like it's not in this photo like, what, yeah. like, Donald, like for instance if donald trump was like up there right that's how he would take it wouldn't, Absolutely. He, wouldn't he reinterpret that in a different way yeah i think you're right yeah i mean the, so the stoics talk about taking plato's view all the time and there's this famous uh dialogue i think it's from is it from lucian but anyways, there's this famous Greek poem about a guy who gets wings and he's able to float above the earth and he sees like the Roman army fighting another army and he says it looks like ants and, you know, all that he, he's able to look at the world. It's interesting, like our viewpoint, like what we get flying in an airplane, it's interesting to think that it was only within the last 100 years that it was even humanly possible for us to look down upon humanity and really grasp how infinitesimal we actually are. So I love that. I think it's inherently ego-killing to think that way. It is ego-killing. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and 
You know, there are a lot of people that are like they're obsessed with living forever. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just curious if there's an individual difference. Like a lot of pe- people aren't obsessed with living forever. You know? Yes. And there are a few people that are like they're like I'm the authority on the world and everything, and I think that when I'm so optimistic that we'll live forever, it's like. Every once in a while, you know, you read one of those articles about like a woman who's like 118 years old and, you know, they're like, what's life like? You know, and they're asking all these questions. She's never like, there just hasn't been enough time. Like, you know, like she, she's never like, I got to live for five more years. She's they, They're always like super chill and they're just like, when I die, I die. It's totally cool. There's something really comforting about that for, for yeah. people who – you know, I, I mean, I have existential – that's part, That's normal. You know, yes. that's, that's not ego necessarily. I mean, that's like, you know, I what existential crisis indicate is that you want to make sure that you have as much meaning in your life as possible and, and that's kind of a signal to you that maybe you're not maximizing right. your meaning. But it is very comforting to know for all people, you know, young people out there listening to this, you know, like if you have these kinds of fears, like chill. Like when you get there someday, you won't be as obsessed with this. You know, yeah. if, if you live a meaningful life. If you kind of live your life in a way where you, you know, follow these principles that you talk about in the book, that you have a purpose and you do it, it's comforting to know that like someday when you're on that deathbed, hopefully you'll be very old, you'll actually be okay. You'll be like, I'm cool. Yeah. Is it Daniel Gilbert who says like one of the beauties of cognitive dissonance is that like whatever you're anxious about, if it actually happens, you won't like your mind will find some rationalization for. So like maybe, maybe you actually will be feel, maybe there actually will be things to regret, but your mind won't actually let you feel the regret that you're dreading. Yeah. That the literature is called effective forecasting. Yeah. uh, You're right. And um, actually uh, Laura King has done really cool research showing that the difference between people who regret things their whole life and people who don't, they both have had the same amount of regretful experiences, <laughs> but the, the difference is they've actually like quantified. It's, it's really cool. I can send you the review paper if you want to read it. Yeah. You find that those who um, live at the very end of their lives, they're like, you know what? I don't have any regrets. They have done deeper work, pros- cognitively processing and making meaning out of all the trials and tribulations and alternate identities that they didn't accomplish in a way that uh, makes them kind of like – okay with it you know they're like you know what that's cool that had meaning my life had meaning because i didn't take that that right so yeah related to that you say there was no grand narrative you should remember you were there when it happened <laughs> i love that quote i love that quote can you well, unpack that a little bit we were talking about this a little bit earlier is that you know you in retrospect you can create some clarity out of events right it's like i did this which led to that which led to this which led to that and now i'm you know the best in the world or whatever, you know, story you tell yourself, but you should remember, like, you didn't feel that way at the time because it didn't really exist, right? It was, and coaches talk about this, like Vince Lombardi is, he's like at the end of it, let's say a Super Bowl winning season, although the Super Bowl didn't really exist then, um, the, you know, the end of the season, you can look at the fact that you won and say like, we won for these reasons, what you never seem to do is go like, hey, remember when that ref blew that call in the third quarter to, to our benefit? We wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened. So all of this is like, you know, not our doing. And so I think it's interesting when you look at the narratives that we have, how self-serving they are. They either make us uh, much better than we actually are or they make us the victim in a way that we probably fully weren't. That reminds me of a of a 
you just triggered a golf a golf quote in me. The great failing is to see yourself as more than you are and to value yourself at less than your true worth. That's the great yeah. failing. Both both those directions. Yeah, right. And I talk about the golden mean a little bit. I don't think that I'm not saying that humility is the opposite of ego. I'm saying that humility is the midpoint between, say, ego and like self-loathing. So I think humility is like the perfect balance or com I would say confidence and humility in some ways are synonyms. Awesome. Right. I'm sending you right now a link to um, this whole research literature that I've been doing some research on called The Quiet Ego. Oh, awesome. Um, and it's just so much in line with that. And also relating to the death thing, they found that when they instill, they kind of experimentally manipulate humility, like experiment manipulate it, people fear death less. So that's actually a direct oh. test of this idea that narcissism is associated with your fear of death. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. send you this right I'm gonna send you this right now before Okay. Okay, so you talk about the difference between alive time and dead time. And that's uh, that's something that one of your mentors taught you, right? Yeah, that's from Robert Greene. It was when I was thinking about leaving American Apparel, I, I, I had about a year left that I needed to sort of do, not contractually, but I just, I, I wasn't, I'd only had the position for, you know, a relatively short amount of time. I needed to put more time in. And Robert was just like, look, you know, this year can be a lifetime for you or a dead time. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, basically, man, he's like, you know, you can, you can get every second out of this and you can use the benefits of your position to meet people, to do research, to develop relationships, you know, to, to learn and to take things sort of slow. Or you can just sort of ride this year out and then start, for, you know, like, basically, he was like, you want to write a book at the, you know, you want to be a writer after you leave. You can start writing the day after you leave or you can do all the work that you need to do before that time and, and get a head start. And that's what I ultimately ended up doing. And I think that's I, – I credit that very much with being able to sort of get this career off the ground maybe quicker than, than other people might be able to. Oh, good. So, so his advice worked. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great advice. And I try to think about it all the time. I think you don't just apply it to, hey, you know, I signed a – a four-year contract with the Marines and I've got, you know, a year left. It's also like I'm stuck in traffic or, you know, my friend was supposed to meet me at four o'clock and they just texted me to say they're not going to be here till 4.45. What are you going to do with those 45 minutes? Are you going to play, you know, Angry Birds on your phone or are you going to read a book or make a phone call or go for a walk or, you know, what are you going to do? Ryan, I want to ask you a question about this because I feel like I, you know, I'm very aware that life is short and that we um, want to, we need to maximize our time. But I find that I can get too obsessed with like, oh, well, I have a full day free. Well, that means I can write four blog posts and five journal articles as opposed to actually sure. like getting like pleasure. Like, you know, there are things I miss, like, you know, like watching movies that are just stupid, you know, like comedies, you know, they, and because I, I, I think I can get too addicted to meaning. Do you know what I mean? I, I agree with that. It, the, the idea that you have to squeeze every Everything. productive second out of every minute, exactly. I think is you've got to understand that, you know, the body is not a even actually, no, it, it, and maybe you do see the body as a machine. Machines can overheat and break and wear down if you don't treat them well. Good. I like that resolution. That's good justification for binge watching on Netflix. 
It's- yeah, look, you got to know what's going on in the culture, man. That's what you tell yourself. Good, good. Okay, thanks for that reconciliation. Okay, so what's the difference between ambition and sanity? So that's from a, a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He's saying, ambition is tying yourself to other people, right? Because like, if you want to do something or be recognized that, you know, you want to become uh, what, I don't know, a Roman position. So like you want to be consul or a, a general or a senator that requires other people doing what you want, right? Someone has to grant you that position. You have to be elected. So he's saying ambition is tying yourself to something you don't control. He's saying sanity is tying it to your own actions. So like, for instance, my book is out this week. If I tie my, if I tie my happiness to writing a good book that I'm proud of, to working hard on it, et cetera, that is sanity. Tying it to whether it hits the New York Times bestseller list or sells an arbitrary number of copies is insanity because I don't control those things. So that kind of, and this is, we'll end with this note. I mean, that really strikes the heart of, of what this, this book is all about. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. What happens when our ego, in a way, the thought experiment is kind of like this. Like, what happens if, like, we die and our work still goes on? Like, what do we really care about in life? Do we care about us living forever, our ego living forever, or our work to help the world as long as possible. It's kind of an, uh, kind of lies at the heart of a lot of what your book is about, right? I think that's true. Although there's a certain amount of ego in those people and the Stokes talk about this a lot who lust for this posthumous fame, right? Like, oh, I, I, I need generations to hear my name forever. You know, the Stokes are like, what do you care? You're dead. You know, like, uh, um, like I, I have that's a line. Sto- that's so stoicism. <laughs> like I, all I, the Stoics. <laughs> I, I have a line. I don't think it's in this book. I think it's in something I'm working on now, but, but it's basically, it's like, you know, Alexandria is named after Alexander the Great, but he's dead. So he has no idea that it still exists. You know what I mean? Like, and so you, what does matter is what he did in his own life. Often, you know, terrible, awful things that couldn't have made him feel good either. Right. Now that's a really good clarification. And when you take the ego out of the equation though, I mean, you do see, and, and as your book shows you, um, that you have a greater likelihood of making an impact on the world. Hopefully. So I want to leave on that note because I think your message gets across in, in, really loud and clear. And I think it's a really terrific book. So thanks, Ryan, for being on the show and for writing this book. Well, I'm so glad we bumped into each other at a random (laughs) Mexican restaurant in Malibu five years ago. (laughs) Me too. I look forward to the next podcast chat when the next book comes out. Thank you. All the best, Ryan. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 